we're in Ezekiel 45 tonight. It has been a one of those difficult chapters. So we will see what we can, we will make the best of it and see what we can, uh, we can do to help us understand not only what it says, but what it means for us. In Ezekiel 45 and verse 1, moreover, when you divide the land by the, by lot into inheritance, you shall set apart a district for the Lord, a holy section of the land. Its length shall be 25,000 cubits and width 10,000. It shall be holy throughout its territory all around. Of this there shall be a square plot for the sanctuary, 500 by 500 rods, with 50 cubits around it for an open space. So this is the district you shall measure, 25,000 cubits long, 10,000 wide, and it shall be the sanctuary, the whole, most holy place, and it shall be a holy section of the land belonging to the priests, the ministers of the sanctuary who come near to the ministers to the, to minister to the Lord. It shall be a place for their houses and a holy place for the sanctuary. An area 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 wide shall belong to the Levites, the ministers of the temple. They shall have 20 chambers as a possession. Now here they're dividing the land. And this would be by lot or by allotment. I'm told you you could look at it both different ways. By lot would seem to us as if they're casting lots for it. And that doesn't seem to be the case when they're dividing the land. Allotment would seem to, to be more of the of the situation here. But the size of these, they are 25,000 by 10,000. I am told by people who know Hebrew that cubits is inserted. It is not in the text. Now there's one place where it says rods. I did not, I kept meaning to go back and check and see if that was in the, in the actual um, manuscripts we have. But I kept forgetting to do that. I'm going to assume that it wasn't, but I'm not as sure on, on that one. But I know that cubits was said to be inserted. They inserted it because it seemed that most of the measuring was done by cubits. Now, a cubit, I took the size, and I my thought was, you know, I wanted to find, figure out how big these things were. And I couldn't find too many places that were actually listing how big these were or how much space it was taking up in Israel. So if these were cubits... Going by the, the size of the cubit to be 21 inches. So, again, there's, there's some uh, discrepancy. I think 18, 21, and 24 inches were the differences in that. We took the middle one, which seems to be the more common. If we do that, the measurement of this allotment, 25,000, if it's 25,000 cubits by 10,000 cubits, would be 8.3 miles in length and 3.3 miles in width. I rounded these up and down to the nearest tenth, but um, I did actually calculate it out all the way out a lot further than that, but uh, this is good enough for us to, to understand. I think actually the miles is 8.28 something, and the miles in width is 3.33 something else in there, so I rounded that one down and rounded the other one up. Now, if it is reeds, a reed is 10 foot in length, and the size would change to 47.3 miles in length. It would be 18.9 miles in width. Now this is about the distance. This is, this is my question. If, 
on this. Uh, it really says that east and the west. And I pulled up a lot of maps, and some maps are, are showing the section between the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea, and some are showing between the Mediterranean Sea and the and the Jordan River. And I went over the text. I went over some other things as well, besides what's just in the in the King James text. Just uh, check this out. I can't find any reference except if, uh, for east and west. So it doesn't necessarily say Jordan River or Dead Sea. If it did, that would immediately locate where this was. But it doesn't do that. So I did my own measuring, and this is the best that I could do with some of the maps that I was able to pull up, and they give you that little, you know, this is 50 miles. And I did that measuring on down. It, you cannot go that far in the north and be measuring this by reed. And if you go further south, you got a lot more space. So somewhere in the middle central Israel to north, slightly north Israel is where this actually comes out to just about 50 miles. And it would fit in there pretty nicely. There is a section on either side for the prince. Now he's just one person. It probably doesn't have to be all that big of a section. It doesn't have to be many miles. It can just be a few miles. If we were to put this this section in the area of Shiloh, it would it would fit if it was if it was reeds. If it was cubits, it would probably fit just about anywhere. But if it's a reed measurement, you could go pretty much from the area of Tel Aviv and up. Tel Aviv, the modern city of Tel Aviv, to uh, to north. If you can pull up our first map, that's the one that's not numbered. I was thinking we're only going to have one map, and I thought, now we got to bring this one on in here too. So this is what we're showing for the portion of the land. We're looking at 25,000 cubits. Now, they measured the cubits out to be eight and an eighth mile. Uh, this I found this after I did my own calculations, but these were my calculations, and I've multiplied it all out and by, by feet and so forth, and I come out a little bit bigger than eight and an eighth and three and a quarter. So just know uh, if I'm off, maybe these guys are more right, maybe I'm more right, and they're a little bit, I don't know. But anyway, it, it comes out around to the same same area. So what you have is these three areas here. This is the holy district, 10,000 cubits high, 25,000 wide, or reeds, one or the other. This is the land for the prince. It's from here to the salt sea. They wrote in their salt sea or dead sea. It does not say that in the text. And another map I pulled up actually said to the Jordan. But this one is going to the Mediterranean Sea. This would be the space on this side. If you're going to do this in cubits, and the prince has all the area on the other side, you're looking at roughly around 50 plus miles minus 8. So one guy gets all that other land and these folks get this. That doesn't quite seem like it works for me. I think it's better read in here if we say reeds and we push this up into the 49 mile, uh, 47.3 miles in length, which would probably give you a good 4 or 5 miles on either side, depending upon where it is actually in the land of Israel. So you have the holy district right in here. This is the area for the priest. This is the area for the temple. It would be there in the center. And this is the this is for the city. Uh, some maps you may call up actually put Jerusalem in there. I don't know that you can say that. It doesn't say that in the in the text. This is the uh, uh, area. For crops and so forth, area for uh, 
workers sitting. They're supposed to grow stuff in this area, and then this would be the city area that I guess where people would be be living at. Regular Levites are up around here. The holy district. This is for those people that those uh, priests that are descendants of um, uh, Zedekiah, Zadok. That's what guys are like. <laughs> Thank you. This is the Zadokites. They are going to be in this area, and then they had the temple in amongst them. That's why that would be be in that middle district. So if we go, let's go to the second map. If we go with an area of using this as reeds instead of cubits, again. Cubits is not in there. So they inserted it. So we're not taking anything from the actual text. We're just, uh, we have to go one way or the other. Either it's going to be reeds or it's going to be cubits. If you go with the, the reed part, there's your 50 mile area. And you can see that pretty much matches right in there. I did a little measuring. I tried to do a little measuring stick with it and came up just a little, this is a little bit shy of these borders from Tel Aviv, which is right there. You get up in these northern areas, and this is not big enough to house it. But over in this area, north of Jerusalem, this is the area where that would fit in and give some areas on the on the left and the right for uh, uh, um, for the the uh, prince to have on both uh, areas on both sides. So this would this would fit in here. Now Shiloh, remember that's one of the locations we gave you for a possibility for this. Shiloh is located right around there, which would put it into an ideal area for this to be. So if they build the temple in Shiloh, this certainly would work. Here's the problem that you have with this, and that is, this is already inhabited land. If you're going to redistrict all of this so that we have... um, uh, the 12 tribes, and it's listed it, who's going to be going where, and, and uh, they allot, they make all these allotments. Um, and I think it's other places in Scripture that's going to list that. But if we reallot this, can you imagine the people that are in there right now, how they would, how they would go about with this, as far as it being, being redistricted, redistricted. This brings us to the theories of Ezekiel's temple. I don't know that I had gone over all the theories for Ezekiel's temple, all the different ways. I may have mentioned a few of them, but I just want to take a little bit of time to let you all know these are all the theories of what Ezekiel's temple means. Uh, first theory is that the temple is only symbolic. There never will be a temple built. It is just symbolism. I don't like that just because the, the measuring that's going on really seems to be measuring a real place. And God comes in and fills the place. It seems like there's too much going on for this just to be symbolic. The second theory is that it's Zerubbabel's temple. But the size of Ezekiel's temple way outclasses anything that Zerubbabel built. It's much bigger. It's bigger than Solomon's. It's bigger than Herod's. Um, and that's when we showed you the different sizes in the, in the map that we put up there. Another is a temple is of the eternal state. This is after the millennial reign when we have the new heaven and new earth. But the word of God tells us that there will not be a temple then. There will be the new city, Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem that will come down. But there will not be a temple. So that would seem to eliminate the theory of the eternal state that some people hold to. There is a temple of the millennial time 
that this is the temple that will be built in the millennial reign. This is under the rule of Jesus Christ. Um, the problem that comes in with that is all of the things that go on with the feasts and the sacrifices would not seem to be uh, be necessary or needed. There is a temple of the tribulation period. And I've talked to you uh, quite a bit about that one. There is going to be a temple in the tribulation period. We know that because of the Antichrist coming in to desecrate the temple. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, you may rem- uh you may uh, have this sound familiar. Christmas time, this is read a lot. And in the, uh, oh, the music arrangement, Messiah. This is one of the verses that they used in that. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold. He is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years." So here we have a reference to the offerings that are being made, but that when the messenger, when Jesus comes, when the Lord comes, He will suddenly come to His temple. And we know that He will come to the Mount of Olives, and the temple will be somewhere near there. So that would seem to indicate that there is a tribulation period temple. If there is a a tribulation period temple, it is likely that this could be it. And this could be the one that is depicted. There are still some problems with this being a tribulation period temple, and we'll cover them as we as we uh, get to those areas in Scripture, that seem to make it be more of a millennial reign temple and only be able to be fulfilled in the millennial reign and other things that seem like it can only be a tribulation period temple. Uh, I was looking over some things and I came upon... Another theory. Um, actually, there's two more. Uh, now, this is it's all wrapped up in this one. This is a theory that the temple will never be built. That this is... Uh, and I, I listened to his whole argument on this just because I just I wanted to grasp it and, and, and be able to get a hold of it. But as he was presenting it, it's more that... It's a tale of two directions. That this is the direction that the end times would have gone had the new covenant not occurred. Since the new covenant occurred, we went in the direction of revelation. But if it had not occurred, this is the direction it would have gone. So I listened to it, thought about it for a little while, and I just don't see why God would ever do that. So I had a, had a hard time grasping that that would actually be a, a reality that this was what the end times would look like if the new covenant never occurred. Basically, the book of Revelation without the new covenant occurring is what he would he would look at these chapters as. So I kind of threw that one out, but I just want to let you know there's there's all kinds of theories out there because we don't have complete understanding of what is, is actually going on with all this. 
but nor did people have complete understanding with Ezekiel's prophecies on the ones that were fulfilled. A lot of times they looked at his prophecies that he that were fulfilled, the, the prophecy of Tyre, which was seen to be so outlandish that those things would be fulfilled, and yet they were. So in, until we see this thing be fulfilled, I don't know that we'll have full understanding as to how it is being fulfilled beforehand. So we just take in what the Word of God says and observe the times as they come. He says, You shall appoint as the property of the city an area 5,000 cubits wide and 25,000 long adjacent to the district of the holy section. It shall belong to the whole house of Israel. The prince shall have a section on one side and the other of the holy district and the city's property and bordering on the holy district and the city's property extended westward on the west side and eastward on the east side. The length shall be side by side with one of the tribal portions from the west border to the east border. The land shall be his possession in Israel, and my princes shall no more oppress my people, but they shall give the rest of the land to the house of Israel according to their tribes. So we showed you the maps of the districts and what has um, what has occurred there, how it would be laid out. Uh, again, the amount of land that the prince gets isn't dictated, and I guess it would just fall to once they had measured out this it would be whatever the land is is left over on either side but there would be some land on either side that would go to him uh, verse 9 thus says the Lord God enough O princes of Israel remove violence and plundering execute justice and righteousness and stop dispossessing my people says the Lord God you shall have honest scales an honest ephah and an honest bath now these are all just uh just uh, units of measurements like we have uh, cups and gallons and, and things like that. These are just the ways they had. And I, I did spend time. I looked these all up and, and checked these out. And it actually has a, gives us no help in understanding this, this area of Scripture at all. So you can go look them up if you want to. But I just don't want to get distracted in too many of the, the things that won't matter here for the overall meaning. But you shall have honest scales, an honest ephah, and an honest bath. The ephah and the bath shall be of the same measure, so that the bath contains one-tenth of an omer, and the ephah one-tenth of an omer. Their measure shall be according to the omer. The shekel shall be twenty geras, twenty shekels, and twenty-five shekels, and fifteen shekels shall be your mina. Now this one was a little bit more difficult to, to figure out. Um, if the shekel shall be twenty geras, then he goes on and says, 20 shekels, 25 shekels, and 15 shekels shall be your minor. So which one is it? <laughs> so uh, one, one possible explanation, which I thought held about the most, uh, most water that I could, I could see, was that this is describing different, uh, different things of value. That one would be gold, one would be silver, and one would be copper. Something along those lines. Because, of course, gold is more valuable than silver. Silver would be more valuable than gold. And that's what they are assigning the value to. But you're supposed to have just balances. So apparently, they had not been having just balances. And if you go back to some of the previous chapters in Ezekiel, he was yelling at the princes, he was yelling at the people that were there, that they were not having just balances. They were abusing the people. They were abusing their their privileges as the the positions that they held and they were taking advantage of the people and that wasn't to be be going on what they would do with some of these a, sh a shekel was uh, so much of a valuable metal usually silver but they would shave some of it off and keep that 
and then still exchange it as a as a full shekel. And so, uh, you know, you do that little while, shave off a little here, a little there, and you can take all those shavings and go out there and get yourself some new shekels. Verse 13, this is the offering which you shall offer. You shall give one-sixth of an ephah from a homer of wheat and one-sixth of an ephah from a homer of barley. The ordinance concerning oil, the bath of oil, is one-tenth of a bath from a core. A core is a homer or ten baths for ten baths or an homer. And one lamb shall be given from a flock of two hundred from the rich pastures of Israel. And they shall be for grain offerings, burnt offerings, and peace offerings to make atonement for them. Now these are things that they were supposed to offer and these were things that they were supposed to bring. The one, verse 15 again, I'm sorry. And one lamb shall be given from a flock of two hundred for the rich pastures of Israel. They shall be for grain offerings, burnt offerings, peace offerings to make atonement for them, says the Lord. Now when it's talking about the prince here, and it, uh, in verse 16, all the people of the land shall give this offering for the prince in Israel. The prince here, it's singular. There are places where it's plural and it says princes but this one is singular. It is not likely the Messiah. And it's not likely the, the Lord in the leadership capacity in here. That, of course, would point us to the, to the um, millennial reign if it did. We're going to go down a few more verses from here. And we're going to see that the prince must bring a sin offering for the people and for himself. Now, if he's the Lord Jesus... Jesus, he doesn't have to bring a sin offering for himself. Hebrews even discusses that. So that wouldn't seem to be the case. He would seem to be uh, a leader from among the people. I don't know that you could figure out who this is because until you know the time frame of when this is supposed to be uh, going on, whether this is going to be going on during the tribulation, whether this is going to go on during a millennial, whether this is going on at some other different time. Uh, I don't know that it'd be possible to figure out who that prince was, but somehow this prince has rulership and specifically over the area of uh, where the temple is and where the Levites are. Whether that means he's of the tribe of Levi as well, don't know. He doesn't have to be. He could be. And then it shall be the prince's part to give burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feast, the new moons, the Sabbaths, and at all the appointed seasons of the house of Israel. He shall prepare the sin offering, the grain offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings to make atonement for the house of Israel. So he's going to be bringing these offerings for the people. He also has to, we're going to find out later on, he has to bring his own offerings too. But all these things are going to be bring, brought to him. And so there are certain things that he will do to offer these, these offerings. Now, we saw in the other areas of Scripture, the chapters previous, that when he comes, he will come in through the east gate. It will be opened for him to come in through the east gate and he will make the sacrifice and he will leave through the east gate. But if you are not that prince, you would be entering into, if you were to enter in, you would enter in through either the north gate or the south gate. But if you came in through the south gate, you had to exit in the north gate. And if you came in the north gate, you had to exit the south gate. You cannot come in or cannot go out the same one you came in on. So that's how it was. So it's not like the north was for in and the south was for out. If you came in the south, then now your exit is up in the north. But you are not going to go out in the east. And that's what they would have have going on. So that was something that they had to do. Now, of course, they could go and do their own thing. But, of course, God would know that they did their own thing and they would have to uh, account for that. We always have the opportunity to do our own thing. 
and not follow the, the ways of God. But God is looking for those who will honor His Word and do what He says. Then we come to one of the more puzzling aspects of this and where I spent a good bit of time trying to figure, figure things out. And that is in verse 18. Thus says the Lord God, In the first month, on the first day of the month, you shall take a young bull without blemish and cleanse the sanctuary. And the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering and put it on the doorpost of the temple, on the four corners of the ledge of the altar, and on the gatepost of the gate of the inner court. And so you shall do on the seventh day of the month for everyone who has sinned unintentionally or in ignorance. Thus you shall make atonement for the temple. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, you shall observe the Passover, a feast of seven days, unleavened bread shall be eaten. And on that day the prince shall prepare for himself and for all the people of the land a bull for a sin offering. On the seven days of the feast he shall prepare a burnt offering to the Lord, seven bulls and seven rams without blemish, daily for seven days, and a kid of the goats daily for a sin offering. And he shall prepare a grain offering of one ephah for each bull and one ephah for each ram, together with a hin of oil for each ephah. In the seventh month, on the, in the seventh month, on the fifteenth day of the month, at the feast he shall do likewise for seven days according to the sin offering, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the oil. So from here he's talking about three festivals, it seems. Now some have this down as two, but it would seem like there's a, a, a third here. The first festival being the festival of the new year, this is in verses 18 through 20. The, the year is to begin with a consecration service. It's not mentioned in the Levitical law, but in uh, but there is a feast of dedication of the second temple, which celebrated its purification by Judas Maccabeus after his defilement, defilement by Antiochus. And there it seems to have, uh, to have picked up. So this seems to be something that may be in mind here when it lists this. The Passover, which we're very familiar with, verses 21 through 24. And then the Feast of Tabernacles comes in on the last verse of verse 25. But the descriptions here deviate from the Levitical, Levitical law. They don't quite list the sacrifices in the same way that the Levitical law does for the Passover or for the Feast of Tabernacles. No explanation is given as to why. It's just listed. Here it is. Here's the Feast of Tabernacles. Here's the Feast of the Passover. We're given the days as the same days that the Levitical law puts these feasts on. But the sacrifices are, are different. Now, Ezekiel, being a priest, knows these sacrifices and feasts well. And he gives no explanation himself or no commentary on these things. Of course, it's, it's not him to explain. God is the one who's, who's telling him these things to, to do. So he would have known this. But there were seven feasts in the land of Israel. Passover, of course, was one. Passover actually had uh, uh, several of the feasts all involved in the one. First fruits was involved, and and um, there there was a number of things that were involved all in that same week. It was a, it was their the busiest and the biggest one that they would have. And then there were some other ones. All those other ones were fulfilled. The um, feast of Pentecost was fulfilled with the day of Pentecost that came upon the the exact same day they would have been celebrating it. Fifty days after the end of Passover. And they would be celebrating this one. But the Feast of Tabernacles, this is the one that was still future. It's still future for us. This is looking at uh, 
uh, a time that hasn't come yet. And so it could be that these are the feasts, the purpose for these feasts being listed, and only these feasts being listed, is that uh, it could be just citing, here's the beginning of the feast, here's the last feast, and do all the things that are in the middle. And I, I don't necessarily think that's the case because we've changed things in the first feast and changed things in the in the last feast. So if you if you did it exactly as it was, then you could say maybe, all right, throw in the, the other feasts in there as well. But there was differences there. Now, one of the things for this, uh, probably the uh, most viable explanation I can see for why this is different is it is possible that the Feast of Passover is being used as simply like we would use communion as a remembrance of what Christ did. And that's why some of the things are not the same. Some of the things are different. Um, I don't know that I could tell you that it is or that it isn't, but that is certainly a possibility that this is just looking back on things, whereas the other one is still looking forward to some things that will happen if this is going to be a tribulation temple and if the things are going to go on, go around the tribulation. If it is a millennial temple and God still wants them to remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, then perhaps that is why this is in there and the communion was just for the church age. Um, so again, we don't. I don't know. I don't know that we have a set explanation as to why this this would be. Uh, the differences are there. No explanation is really given, and there are going to be some other things that are going to be hard for us to understand, hard for us to tie in. But we just have to take all these things in stride and just understand. All right, this is what the Bible has predicted. Ezekiel has predicted some very difficult things, and so far all of them have come about. So. I'm going to look at his history and say, well, Ezekiel has been accurate so far. Since he's been accurate so far, I'm going to stay with it. We're going to keep on going this this way. There are still some things in the Word of God we do not un- have understanding on. There are, uh, for me, there, there's many things I still don't have understanding on. Uh, the things in Ezekiel are one of them. I knew when we took on this book, these last chapters were things I still didn't fully comprehend and still didn't fully understand. Um, but you know, you jump in <laughs> until you put a demand on the on the thing. You just don't you don't get an explanation on it. So I I've uh, studied on this, read on this, looked. On, I, I don't have a full understanding of it. But we just take on what the Bible teaches us on this and refrain from drawing any applications on it. I don't know if I put this in your outline or not, but uh, have it in mind. I had to take some things out of yours. Application without full understanding will lead to wrong conclusions. We have to be careful about taking an application when I don't have the full understanding of what's going on in the Scripture. Sometimes we don't have the full understanding because I don't have the context of what is being taught. Some people like to take a verse out of context. They take a verse here, they take a verse there, but they don't see the whole context of, of why that verse was, was put there. Sometimes the context will limit what, uh, what meaning we can get from it. And if we pull it out, just like uh, we were um, going over in our reading, the lost parables, and we've covered them before. I thought you made it a little note up there on the on the lost parables of how much she enjoys reading these. 
uh, understanding them all to, together. If you see them as three together and understand their meaning together, we won't get the same meaning that we get when we pull them apart. And sometimes we pull them apart and we try and get meanings out of them uh, separate from the others. But he gave all three for a purpose. And when we see all three together, it limits what we can, uh, how, how we can understand these things. Just like with Jesus teaching in the end times. A lot of times people will pull his, his teaching. Two will be on a hill, one will be taken, one will be left. And people take that to mean the rapture. Except for the fact that the limiting, um, one of the limiting factors on that is the disciples asked three questions. Those three questions are repeated in each gospel that records the teachings of Jesus on end times. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The age they asked about is the end of the Jewish age. They weren't in the church age yet. They asked about the end of the Jewish age. That's all they knew. They didn't know that the church age was coming. That was a mystery. That was a mystery that was revealed to Paul. And then Paul came and he taught it to the people. And that's where we have the epistles that teaches us things about the church age. But they didn't know about that, so they couldn't ask about the church age since they didn't ask about the church age, Jesus didn't answer questions on the church age. But if you don't take that limiting factor, then you'll pull what Jesus taught and apply it to something that doesn't mean it, uh, that it has no meaning towards. And so people try and use that as uh, proof of the, of the rapture. Now that end result might be right. The rapture can be correct, but, but if you teach it from a wrong place, then you allow that doctrine to be attacked. You allow that doctrine to not stand on its own. People will say, well, that can't be because look at this. And so then they throw the whole thing out. So we have to be careful. When we don't have full understanding, we can come to wrong conclusions. Now, just because people do come to wrong conclusions because of our, uh, not having full understanding doesn't mean that they're a false teacher. A false teacher in the Word of God is someone who has deliberately gone against the truth deliberately disbelieved the truth to go after a lie, as Paul put it. They pursued a lie. They pursued something that was false. They pursued doctrines of devils. That would be a false teacher. And that would be leading people in a wrong direction than God would have them to go. And that's what we have to be careful of. Just because somebody teaches something that's not right does not make them a false teacher. It makes them an inaccurate teacher. Apollos was an inaccurate teacher. He was not a false teacher. But when he was pulled aside and shown things and explained things, he uh, sharpened up and he became a very accurate teacher and a very uh, very effective one. But don't feel that just because someone has gotten something wrong that, well, they're a false teacher and just brand them for the rest of their life. Uh, uh, thank God that's not the case. There were things I didn't have full understanding on. I thought I had more understanding on it. I didn't ever think that I had full understanding, but I thought I had more understanding than what I ended up having. And I came to some conclusions. And there's been times I've, I've gone back and I showed some of those conclusions and said, all right, that conclusion was wrong because this was wrong. We did that in, uh, most recently in some end times teaching that we were doing in the area of um, uh, what the last kingdom was going to be. And so uh, I came to my conclusions based upon understanding that I had, but it was not full understanding. When I got more understanding on it, I changed the conclusion. And you have to be willing to do that, that if you get more understanding on a on a topic, oh, well, this can't mean that, but it can mean this. And so then we go after um, those particular things. On Sunday, I was talking about one uh, one particular minister, and, and um, I don't ever mean to, to 
to put that particular one into a place of false teaching, it is a place of inaccurate teaching because you take scriptures out of their context to mean what you want them to mean. One of the simplest ways to find out if we are on track with what we're teaching is to compare the end result with where the teaching goes. The end result of where the Bible goes is in the, in the Word of God, it is to change me. The Word of God is here to change me. That's the number one thing. I'm reading the Word of God because there's things inside of me. I got there's, there's uh, specks in my eyes, there's logs in my eyes, there's, there's stuff in my eyes. <laughs> and it prevents me from seeing, it prevents me from, from walking right. And the Word of God tells me, you know, you need to correct that. It doesn't ever say that I can't correct other people or that I can't judge other people for having something that is wrong. It's just first I have to correct the things that are going on in my life and then I'll be in better position to be able to do those things that are for uh, in other people's lives. Some of these uh, doctrines that I was, I was talking about were uh, folks are out there trying to get believers to adopt a viewpoint that others must change to benefit me. That's never God. This has been one particular thing I'm, I'm thinking about. Others have to change in order to benefit me. Now, see, that's not in the Word of God. If I come out with a conclusion, no matter how many scriptures I have, I have five scriptures, ten scriptures, twenty scriptures, it doesn't matter how many I have. If I come out with a conclusion that God wants me to understand how I can change other people so that they will benefit me, that's wrong. But that's what some of these uh, things that are, are coming out in the Word of God are for. The Gospel of Ultra Grace. The Gospel of Ultra Grace is a, a gospel that means you don't have to change what you're doing. You can do whatever you want to do and according to the Word of God, you are forgiven. That's ultra grace. Now that's wrong because that's a, that's a wrong end result. You've got to look at where the road is, is, is leading to. I always look at, at a person when they're ministering, when they're teaching the Word, where does the road lead? If the road leads to a place where I can do whatever I want, I don't have to ask God for forgiveness because of ultra grace. All my sins have been forgiven anyway. So I'm just going to go out there and live any way I want. I don't have to change me now. I just go out and I just do stuff. Well, see, that's wrong because the Word of God is here to change me, to, to craft me into the image of God. And that's the purpose of it. That's one of the purposes of the Word. So if I ever go to the Word of God and come out with a purpose that's different from it changing me to line up with the Word, now I missed it. I've come up with the wrong conclusion. And I need to, I need to fix that. And if I have a conclusion that other people need to give up stuff for me, well, that's wrong. I, I can't impose that on people. The Word of God never says that uh, the, the poor among you make demands upon you to give up your, your cloak and to give up your money and, the, and so forth. It doesn't ever do that. It tells you develop an attitude that when you see your brother in need, go out there to help him. And you, you follow after the, what the Spirit of God would, would do. Now that doesn't mean that every time you see a person in need that you go out there to do it and, and to help that. Uh, Jesus was not that. How many times did Jesus walk past people who had needs? We, we hear about the ones that he stopped and he took care of, but certainly there were others who didn't. 
there was times when he was in, in cities and he said he could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief. Well, there was, there was needs, but he couldn't minister to them because of, of something that was on their... They hadn't made changes. They hadn't made the changes that they needed. When he walked up to the lame man at the pool, there was lame people and people with all kinds of disorders all around him. He doesn't mess with... He goes after this one. Well, if he's supposed to do everything for everybody, why didn't he go after all those? Why does he bring up the example that there were a whole lot of lepers in Israel, but only Naaman, who was a Syrian, was healed? Why does he bring up that example? So, we have to make sure that the end result, where is this teaching taking me? And if it's not taking me in a direction that's consistent with Scripture. And Scripture is really pretty easy to understand. It's I'm either going in a direction to understand God better. I'm going in a direction to make me more into the image of God. Um, and you can probably list a few more things that, it, that is there to, to, to help. It, help. it brings us comfort and peace. And knowing some of the things about prophecies and in the future. This comes about with comfort and peace. Paul says we write these things to you that you be comforted by these words. And a lot of times people are teaching end times and there's no comfort. Well, the Paul says the purpose of end times teaching is to bring comfort. And I hear end times teaching and it doesn't bring me comfort. Then somehow we diverted. And whatever teaching they're coming up with, if it's not bringing me comfort, then we diverted. We, we've gone into a, a, a wrong place. And Paul dealt with people in his day that taught things that were not bringing comfort and brought distress upon people. And they were concerned, they were worried, they were fearful. And he says, no, 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 this ought, to, ought not to be. The teaching that we bring you on end times brings you comfort. How many of y'all know it's good to understand end times? To understand how the end is, is coming about. Because then all these people are trying to predict uh, awful things happening. We know, well, they're not going to happen because the Word of God says that this is how it's going to go. The Word of God says this is the direction that we're going to go. And so that's the purpose of end times teaching. Whenever you listen to end times teaching, you ought to come out of there and say, well, glory to God, I am glad we're on this side. I'm glad I'm on this side of being under an understanding. That's the direction that it should go. So whenever you hear teaching, look for the end road. Where is the end of this going to be? Now, sometimes you could probably take some of these chapters and these, uh, these latter ones of Ezekiel and you can teach all manner of things but we have to make sure that it's in the direction of what God wants us to understand. And when we don't have full understanding, then we simply teach what the Word of God says. And then when it unfolds, we'll see it. Because I have the understanding of, of those things. Oh, wait a minute. Here's that temple. Here's that redistricting that was, that was being talked about. Here's that sectioning off of the Levites and the, and the, um, uh, the, the, the different priests that are going to be there and the, the place for the temple and the place for the, uh, for the city and all these things are laid. When we start to see that going on, now, all right, now, here's where this is. Let's see this unfold. That's the direction that we can go. Now, there are people out there, Christians, they say they're Christians, they say they're the family of God, who will look at these scriptures and will tell you why they're not going to come about, why it's a false prophecy. And... I'll tell you what, Ezekiel's got a pretty good track record. I'm not messing with his track record. He's, uh, he's heard some tremendous things from God 
And because of his obedience, God was able to speak things to him so exactly because he knew he'd write them down or he would speak them exactly as he, would, he gave them. And I think the same thing with this. Now again, throughout these chapters, I, I make note of it every once in a while, but you will notice the absence of people. He never sees people. He saw people in the previous visions of the temple. When he went back into Jerusalem and he saw the temple that was there, he saw the people there. He saw the things they were doing. But in this vision with these people, we're not seeing the people. It seems like it's a vacant city, a vacant temple, a vacant place. That has meaning to this somehow. Either he's in a different dimension where those people are not. I don't know what the meaning of it is. I just know this is what's going on. I'm going to keep that in mind so that when I see these things unfold, we'll, we'll understand. But there's a reason why God said we needed to know these things. Otherwise, he would not have put it in the book. He would not have had Ezekiel write it down and include it with all the other things. There's a reason why we need to learn these things. There's a reason why Israel needed to learn these things. Something is coming up. And even though we don't know exactly what it is, we will be prepared for it if we understand what he wrote. So we'll, we'll wrap this one up with this. I don't have complete understanding as to why all these things are going on. Why there's only two, maybe three of the feasts looked at here in the first one would be one that's in the Levitical feast. But um, certainly Passover is in there and, and Tabernacles is certainly in there even though it seems like they have different aspects of them than how the Levitical law laid them out. So just keep in mind, these are the, these are the two feasts, Passover and, and uh, Tabernacles. And then, of course, the New Year thing thrown in there too. Um, these are the feasts that he wanted us to understand. This, this is what you're going to be doing. The other ones being fulfilled, they weren't included. Passover may just be going back and remembering. Maybe it's just done in remembrance. Some folks think that the sacrifices that are being done here are just done in remembrance. But there's a lot of sacrifices going on to be done in remembrance, but maybe that's the way that they, they were doing it. If it's a millennial kingdom temple and it's just done in remembrance, that could well be. Uh, I, I don't know. But we're going to keep these things in mind, understand them, and uh, keep on treading through. we got 46, 47, and 48 to go. And then Ezekiel is done. And we will uh, be moving on to some other things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that no matter how many times we come to your word, there are always things that we don't fully understand. There's more revelation for us to receive, more revelation for us to have. I thank you, Father, that we are always growing in the revelation that we have. Help us to resist the temptation to draw conclusions on things that we're not having the full revelation of. That we can have the peace that comes that, well, I don't quite have full understanding on that, so I'll wait until I get the full understanding until I come to a conclusion. But there are things that you have given us understanding on. And we can come to the conclusion of those. Even when Jesus taught the parables, and he came back to the disciples, he gave them conclusions based upon understanding of the parable. We can certainly have those conclusions. There are going to be some areas that we understand, and at least understand enough to draw the conclusions that we need for our life. But I thank you that this book is not only written for our life here, it's written for what things come to us in the future. Now, I thank you for the help that you give us in understanding 
all that we need to know and coming to conclusions that we need. We give you the praise and the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.